Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, whether they're on your phone or old-fashioned like I do, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 30. So we're continuing on in our journey through the book of Acts, the historical accounts within the first century after Christ's ascension to heaven, where the gospel was advanced to the known ends of the earth and Christ's universal church was formed. This has been like an ongoing dramatic television series with constant mystery, intrigue, arguing, fighting, riots, chaos, warring factions, death threats, arrests, imprisonments, beatings, plots to kill main characters, murder with supernatural happenings and miraculous escapes, and our story is no different this morning. Our main character often is the Apostle Paul, and we're guaranteed that whenever Paul is featured in an episode, there will be trouble, chaos, conflict, exciting adventure, and bold moves on his part. Let's take a brief look at where the story ended last week to give us a better understanding on where it will pick up today. So Paul arrives in Jerusalem, the city he felt compelled to go to by the Holy Spirit, even though he was warned of great danger. Almost immediately, the Jews publicly spoke out against Paul with all kinds of false accusations, and the entire city was aroused and came running from all directions, seized Paul, dragged him into the temple, and began to try to kill him. The Roman commander, seeing what was happening, gathered some officers and soldiers who broke it up, arrested Paul, and ordered him to be bound in chains. When the commander quieted the crowd and began to explore what Paul had done, angry shouting came from every direction of the mob. The violence of the mob became so great that the soldiers actually had to carry Paul out of there while the crowd shouted, away with him. Paul, for the moment, is safe, and yet he asks the commander something kind of crazy. He wants to go back, and he says, please, may I speak to the people? Paul witnesses to them, sharing with them his faith story on how once a persecutor of the Christian way is now a believer in Christ who has been sent on a mission to share the good news, not only with the Jews, but also with the Gentiles, that the Gentiles were included in God's plan of redemption. This was not what the Jews wanted to hear. You see, the Jews despised Gentiles as harsh overlords and oppressors and saw them as filthy unbelievers who defiled the temple and who had no place in God's kingdom plan. Upon hearing Paul say this, they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him! He is not fit to live. The entire crowd was shouting and screaming, throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. I guess you could say they were kind of ticked off. The commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks and be flogged. That is until found that Paul was a Roman citizen. And flogging a Roman citizen before he was tried and found guilty was against the law. The commander, alarmed that he would get in trouble if his superiors found out, he put a Roman citizen in chains and was about to beat him before he was found guilty through trial, decided to spend the evening thinking about what to do. And this takes us to the beginning of our text today in Acts 22.30. And before we jump into that, let's have a word of prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to fix our hearts and our minds on you right now this morning. And we're thankful that you promise where two or three are gathered in your name that you're in our midst and we acknowledge your presence with us this morning. And Lord, we know that we come here to hear your word preached and and we pray, Lord, that uh, as you meet us 
in this large group individually and want to speak very specifically into our minds and hearts that we would be open to what it is that you want to say to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move through this message, that your word, as you promised, will not return void, and that all of us would be able to walk out of here knowing you in a deeper, more personal way, loving you more sincerely, having a heart of worship and devotion to you, and ultimately knowing what it is that you want us to do with the word that was preached this morning. We ask that you'd be glorified, that the name of Jesus would be lifted up, and we pray that in your name. Amen. So Acts 22.30, we're starting there, and it says, The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the entire Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had them stand before them. So the Sanhedrin that he's speaking of here is the Jewish Supreme Court. It's the entire ruling body for the Jews, and it consisted of somewhere between 70 to 100 uh, rabbis, um, high priests, and uh, ultimately, they, they thought that the perfect number was 71, which at different times they would achieve. They sat in a semicircle back by three rows of their disciples with court clerks standing in front. And the high priest and the chief priest were a combination of two religious sects, the Sadducees and Pharisees. The court was respected by the Roman governor whose approval was needed before sentencing, sentencing anyone to capital punishment. So this is an amazing scene. I want you to... Step into Paul's shoes for just a minute. He's seated before a council and support staff that totaled probably well over 300 people to give an answer for the accusations levied against him. His life hangs in the balance. His answers could mean life or death. He stands trial not just to defend his theology, but to be judged on whether he deserves to be put to death. This is the drama of Acts 23. Imagine the pressure he must have felt in that moment. For remember, his heart's passion and goal after Jerusalem was to still get to Rome, and he's got to be wondering if he's ever even going to make it that far. It's important to point out Paul's mission mindset. I'd be willing to bet that he never once dreamed that he was, in his travels, going to be led by God to preach the gospel in front of the Jewish Supreme Court. What I want you to see here is that Paul's passion, his love for Christ and the lost, often led him to messy places full of messy people. He knew God's mission would lead him amongst the people who would ridicule and mock, who would threaten and physically accost, who would beat him and try to kill him. And yet somehow, he didn't see them as his enemies. The love that God richly gave him became part of the love in his heart for others, a love that compelled him at great risk and danger to himself. All that lost people might hear the good news of Jesus Christ, receive it, and find salvation in him. And that leads me to a question for you this morning. What messy places that maybe you previously avoided is God now asking you to enter for the sake of the gospel? Messy places are not just for the chosen few. If you consider yourself a follower of Christ, you will be called by him into the broken, messy lives of others. God calls you into these places after he's equipped you with the very comfort and healing and freedom and deliverance and transformation from the hurt, brokenness, addiction, pain, loneliness, and loss that you've experienced in your life. In this season, is there something God wants to use in your life to equip you for this very mission? It caused me to think of King David as he wrote in Psalm 41 through 3, where he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I turned, he turned, I turned to him and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. 
He put a new song in my heart, a hymn of praise to my God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. You see, King David, as he's writing this psalm, he remembers a time when he was actually in a pit. And sometimes a pit can be of our own sin, our own making, and sometimes a pit is just the consequences of living in a fallen world. And he identifies this pit as a slimy pit. And, and you know, it's not a pit that we can typically get out of ourselves. And if you imagine that you're in a pit and your arms outstretched and the pit is still four to six feet above you and you're trying to claw your ways out of this muddy, watery, slimy, miry pit and you get maybe a couple feet up and then you just slime back down and you're all slimy and muddy from your attempts to do it yourself. King David says, no, that it's Jesus who actually lifted me out of this. And then he set my feet on a firm and stable and secure foundation. And he didn't stop there, but he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God, that once he takes us out of that slimy pit, after he helps us to overcome and get out, there's this heart of thanksgiving and praise. And then at the end is what we're focusing, want to focus on here, because this is what happens. Him bringing us out of the slimy pit's never just for us. Because then he says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I don't know what pitch you might be in this morning. But please understand that you're never going to pull yourself out. Jesus alone can do that. And he will often use someone who is willing to step into that messy place with you, muddying themselves in the process so that you might find the freedom and victory to be had in Christ so that you in turn can help others. Let's choose to be a church that is willing to go to messy places and enter the messy lives of others so that they might know the love and saving grace of Jesus. Amen? Let's be that kind of church. And I don't want you to forget that Paul came from this very messy place himself. Paul was a former persecutor of the church. He hated Christians. He was full of prejudice and anger and resentment and legalism and self-righteousness. He knew what it was like to feel the guilt and shame of hurting others. He knew what it was like to feel confused and deceived and lost. And now God has led him to this very place surrounded by very messy people in hope that some of them might find Christ. And that is what this scene is all about today. And what we need to understand is that we were once those very same messy people. He's standing in the midst of people that he once was, that he was just like, until God set him free. Let's continue on, and let's read in Acts 23, verses 1 through 5. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. So Paul begins his defense by claiming that he, though a Christian convert, still serves Yahweh and lives faithful to the Jewish laws. To Ananias the high priest, these two identities, Christian and Jew, were incompatible. Thus Paul's words were tantamount to blasphemy, and Ananias commands those closest to Paul to strike him in the face. In the moment, Paul lost his temper and lashed out in frustration, pointing out the very hypocrisy of those accusing him, not yet a man, you know, said to be guilty, 
for violating the law that they would violate it himself by striking him. He believed he had been severely mistreated and he let his audience know it. Once told he was addressing the high priest, Paul offered an apology grounding his confession in the Old Testament scriptures. Then watch what Paul does. He masterfully redirects the proceedings. Let's read in verse 6 through 10. And Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn in pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So Paul recognizes the makeup of his audience. Half of them are Sadducees and half of them are Pharisees. These two groups had sharp disagreements about the Jewish religion. You see, the Sadducees believed in and followed the first five books of the Bible only, the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in the supernatural world of spirits, angels, demons. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead or the afterlife. And they didn't believe that they needed a Messiah. While the Pharisees believed in and followed the entire Old Testament scriptures, they believed in the supernatural world of angels and demons. They believed in the afterlife, and they were looking for a future Messiah, yet they didn't see that in Jesus. They believed in the resurrection from the dead, and this was the sect that Paul's father was a part of, and the one that he grew up and was trained under. Paul exploits this disparity in beliefs and declares he stands trial because he holds hope in the resurrection of the dead. And I think there's a point of instruction in this for us. We should note and follow Paul's example in this, in that when witnessing, we should find the common ground that we have first with people, rather than pointing out first the differences in where you believe they are wrong. Sometimes that is the way that we can bridge to them actually opening up to hear what we have to say. I learned that the hard way, that when I came home as a 23-year-old man, growing up as a Catholic person, that I went home and started telling all my Catholic friends and family how they were wrong and all the different ways they were wrong. And I tell you what, that didn't get me very far. It actually caused a lot of people to, um, you know, stay away from me. And I don't think that this is how God wants us to do it, and I think that this is exactly what we're seeing here in Paul. Paul's words before the Sanhedrin serve as gasoline on an already smoldering fire, and the assembly erupts as the two competing worldviews clash. The Pharisees even begin to argue, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? So he's starting to get the Pharisees on his side, like I said, because there's a common ground there. They both evidently believe and have a hope in the resurrection. The argument became so violent that the Roman commander feared that the mob would tear Paul in two, so he ordered his troops to remove Paul by force and bring him into the barracks. When Paul speaks of the hope of the resurrection, he speaks of a twofold focus. And the first is that he believes and has a hope in the resurrection because Jesus himself rose from the dead. 
And we know that as we look back in the story of Acts, that in, in the beginning, you know, Paul was the persecutor of the church, and he had certificate from the high priest to go around and round up Christians, put them in chains, and throw them in prison. Until in Acts chapter 9, we see that Paul had an encounter with the risen Jesus, and he ultimately puts his faith in Christ as his Savior, and his old life is transformed from that point. But the second aspect that he's talking about, the hope of the resurrection, is that all believers will be raised unto eternal life in heaven with Christ, while rejectors of Christ will be raised to eternal damnation and separation from God forever. Paul proclaims that without the resurrection, Christianity is worthless. For in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 17, he writes, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. As I reflected on the resurrection, I was reminded of a man named Chuck Colson. He was the chief counsel, considered the hatchet man for the Nixon administration, and was one of the masterminds behind the Watergate scandal. He was sent to prison for his role, and while there, he gave his life to Christ. And in 1976, Chuck Colson founded Prison Fellowship, the nation's largest nonprofit ministry serving prisoners and families. He wrote this in his book called Loving God in defense of the resurrection. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they continued to proclaim that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was either beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison, with some going to a martyr's death, all because of their belief in the resurrection. Watergate involved 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 disciples could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. You see, the inherent need in every man is for self-preservation, and self-preservation will always kill a lie. No one would be willing to die for something they knew was not true. We believe Christ rose from the dead on the third day. We believe his promise that through our faith in him, we will be raised to eternal life with him, a life that includes sinless perfection in the presence of God no longer stained with sin or struggling with temptation or addiction or guilt or shame, no more broken hearts or broken dreams or broken friendships or families. We believe we'll be given a glorious new body, no longer cursed by sin, no longer subject to sickness, disease, decay, or death, no longer subjected to the negative effects of old age with the constant aches of pains and loss of energy and brain power and our senses beginning to fail. Imagine a body where everything works perfectly forever. We'll live on a glorious new redeemed earth where there's absolute beauty, a true paradise that's no longer under the curse, where everything you see is amazing, beautiful sights, exquisite architecture, fascinating adventure and activity and exploration, rewarding, fulfilling, and desirable work. No stresses, pressures, or unreasonable demands or deadlines. No more jerky bosses or coworkers. Where we'll have perfect relationships, no arguing, no disputes, no conflict. No division or taking sides, no divorce, no hurtful words or actions, no mistreatment, ridicule or rejection, no murder, killing or war. Fantastic reunions with family and friends that have gone before you and continual, never-ending, perfect love, acceptance and approval. Well, we will bask in the glorious presence of the God and Savior who loves us so much that he provided a way and a future life with him. How amazing is that? 
This is our hope of the resurrection. This is the promise of the resurrection that gives us hope as we live in a fallen, broken, evil, sin-wracked world. This is what we fix our eyes and hearts on as the world, and sometimes our lives feel as if the earth beneath our feet is crumbling and caving in. Amen? Amen. Let's move on in Acts 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. God knows exactly what Paul needs and meets him in the perfect time of that need. After he's been through everything he's been through, Paul had to be feeling spiritually, emotionally, and physically drained and exhausted and discouraged and wondering and maybe worried what the future held for him. He's literally and figuratively, I would say, feeling pretty beat up right now. Jesus comes to him and reassures him to take courage, that he hasn't abandoned him, that he's right there with him, keeping him safe, and his dream to go to Rome will be fulfilled. When we're in the flames of trouble and temptation and trial, oh, how we need to be reassured that Christ is right there with us. We want to know that we have not been forgotten or passed over, that he still loves and cares about us, that he's still working even when we can't see it or feel it. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to hear these words from the scriptures that Jesus wants to speak into your heart. I have loved you with an everlasting love and I've drawn you with my loving kindness. I will not leave you as an orphan to face the trials of this world alone. I will never leave you or forsake you or ever cast you out. Nothing in all creation can ever separate you from my love. No one can snatch you from my hand. I am always close to the brokenhearted and will save those who are crushed in spirit. I will strengthen you and help you and will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Go ahead and open your eyes. These are promises of Christ for all who have faith in him. This relationship we have with Christ, it's not some lofty, unreachable ideal. It's real and it's experiential. That through prayer, time in his word, and through fellowship with other Christians, we can really, truly experience inner peace. A peace that Jesus declares that the world cannot give. A peace that says transcends understanding regardless of what you're going through. It's an inner peace and joy that's not fleeting, but lasting. That in this relationship we find that we get help in time of temptation and the power to stand against sin, the power to serve for him. That we can find wisdom, direction, and guidance that leads us through life's major decisions. That we can find comfort in times of suffering, trials, and loss. When your present life is surrounded by difficulties, it can be so hard to remember the past trials that Jesus has brought you through. How many times in the past did you think or say to yourself, I'm not going to survive this one. This one is going to devastate me. There's no recovery this time from this one. And yet here you are. With Christ you made it through and with Christ you will make it through again. My heart breaks for people who have to go through so much pain and heartache without Jesus in their lives. I, I couldn't imagine. I don't know how they make it through each day. 
Without Christ, what we must face in this fallen world would be overwhelming. You may have heard over the years, as I have, Jesus is just a crutch for the weak person who can't cope with life on their own. Years ago, I used to take those words as an insult. Now my response would be, exactly, now you're starting to understand. You see, Christianity is not this self-help, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of faith. As someone who had two reconstructive knee surgeries, a ruptured Achilles tendon surgery, and a knee replacement, let me tell you, I praised and thanked God every time there was crutches provided. Because I wouldn't have been able to stand, I wouldn't have been able to walk, I would not have been able to go anywhere. And I am so thankful that I have a crutch in Jesus, not just when I have knee surgery, but every day of my life. And whatever I face, whatever pressures, whatever stresses, whatever trials, whatever pain, whatever suffering, whatever loss, whatever bad diagnosis, I have Jesus walking with me as my crutch. As Christians, we hold tight to the words of Jesus found in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30 where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My reflections reminded me of a time when Jesus had been preaching some very difficult truths. And he noticed that this large crowd that was following him just was disbanding to the point where very few remained. And he looks over at Peter and he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, where else am I going to go? You have the words of life. Whatever you're facing right now, run to Jesus. In him there's an endless supply of strength, love, hope, comfort, and peace to face everything that you're facing in life. With Jesus, you will come out the other side stronger. Let's finish this week's exciting episode by reading the rest of the text. Let's read verses 12 through 22. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. Let me just tell you here that in my studies, obviously, we know the plot didn't succeed because Paul was still alive after this episode. And so what I came to find is actually in Jewish law, there's four different kind of loopholes in these vows that are made. Because other guys, these guys would have starved to death, right? Because they didn't accomplish their task. So they found a loophole, and after Paul left, they probably started eating. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned this commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We're ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. You know, other than the scriptures talking about Paul's father being a Pharisee also, we don't really hear anything about his family, to my knowledge. Except right here, they speak of a nephew, of his sister. And more than likely, what happened when Paul became a Christian is that his dad being a Pharisee and the whole family being brought up in this, that I would imagine that the entire family disowned him. 
Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give it to them because more than 40 of them are waiting to ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to, the, to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. So basically these 40 men go to the high priest and, and the chief counsel and say, hey, we, we want to do this ruse because we're, we've made a vow that we're going to you know, kill Paul. And so tell them that they want Paul to come to the court again because they want more information about his case. And while he's coming in the narrow streets of Jerusalem, 40 of us will surround him and put him to death. But there's a little nephew that God uses because God has a different plan. Let's finish up our reading here. Let's read verse 23 through 35. And he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Um, There's a thousand typically soldiers in the barracks of of these stations in in that time, and, and they're using almost half of them to make sure that Paul is protected to get to his journey. 470 in total. So then he writes a letter, and I'm not going to read that, uh, to Felix explaining you know, what this is all about. In verse 31, it says, So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from, learning that he was from Cilicia, He said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So this episode ends with Paul brought to safety in the dark of night after this group of 40 murderous thugs are in their beds asleep. 470 military men escort him some 60 miles to Caesarea where a governor named Felix will take up the case. It was an unbelieving Roman commander worn by Paul's young nephew, part of a family that disowned him, who God uses to save Paul from this murderous plot. For now, Paul is safe, but know there are plenty of challenges ahead for him as we finish out the story of Acts. God's not finished with Paul, who has a mission ahead in Rome. And because you are still here, he's not finished with you. Find out what he has left for you to do before he takes you home. To close this morning, the book of Acts, actually the entire Bible from beginning to end has one common theme, and that is God's story of redemption. We have some crazy things going on in our world right now, and what we can be assured of is that God is sovereign over all. And he's using everything that's going on in the world and even in your life according to his divine plan of redemption. Acts 17, 26 and 27 says, From one man God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him 
though he is not far from each one of us. It's God who has determined the times and places and events of every human being. God is sovereign. He sees all. He knows all. He's in charge. He's still in control. And he has an eternal plan that cannot be thwarted. God is over the biggest events and circumstances on the world stage all the way to the most minute details of what's going on in your life. God will use the good and the beautiful and the bad and the ugly all towards his eternal purpose and plan. All the way from what's happening in our universe to what's going on with you right now. Romans 8.28 confirms this. It says, Paul writes, and we know that in all things, say with me, all things, God works for the good. Say, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If it is all things and what is currently going on in our world and in your life, God purposes to use it for good. What can he not use for good? Nothing. What's the good he's talking about? Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. What is his present goal in your life? It's to use the beautiful, the good, the bad, and the ugly in your life to make you more like Jesus. What does that mean? What does that look like? It means the fruit of the Spirit, to fill your heart and life with his very best, The nine fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, and peace. And if we didn't have to even mention the others, we could stop right there. Because who wouldn't want a life that is full of abundant love, joy, and peace? Is there anything more valuable or worthy in your life than to have love, joy, and peace? It's what the whole world is searching for. But then he goes on. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. And self-control. Who wouldn't want to be a person like that? And what this means is your greatest hurts, your greatest conflicts, your greatest challenges and setbacks and trials, your greatest frustrations and disappointments, your health scares, the difficult people in your life, the injustices that you experience. God wants to use it all for your good, to make you better, not bitter. Are you giving God free reign to do that in your life? Finally, what's his end goal? Romans 8.30 says this. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is an unbreakable chain in the life of the believer that from eternity past as he foresaw you and knew that he called you to himself and as he called you to himself he justified you through the blood of Christ all the way to the point of eternity future your glory in heaven with him forever. That's the unbreakable chain. That's the purpose that God has in your life. That's what he wants to do and he promises to use everything that happens in your life towards those ends. His end goal is your resurrection. That after you've faced all the junk that this life has, that you will be resurrected in all glory to live with him forever. Amen? Amen. Hope and peace in difficult times comes from the security you have in your eternal destiny. Knowing the love of Christ is unshakable in your life serves as that stable and secure foundation. 
It's what gave Paul the confidence and courage to press on in the mission of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in a very messy world with very messy people. Let's choose to follow his example. We want to have our response time now. And you know, that's the beautiful thing that I say over and over again is that about our God is that he's so personal that even though we're in this group, he's speaking to you as an individual this morning. And he may be speaking to you in a totally different way that he's speaking to the person across the room. And this is your opportunity in response time. However he's been speaking to you, spend some time with him to talk it over. Whatever step of faith that he is asking you to take, say yes to him this morning. And then tell someone. You see, because we have these encounters with God and we believe that God really actually has spoken to us about something and has made us aware of something. And ultimately we go home and we don't tell anybody because then that doesn't make us accountable. And so we quickly forget what it is that he spoke to us about. We take no action about it whatsoever. And then we come back the next Sunday waiting for him to speak to us again. So if there is something specific that God has spoken to you about, tell somebody, tell a loved one, tell your spouse, tell a close friend so they can encourage you and pray for you and hold you accountable to those very things. All right? So let's go ahead and spend a little time in that response time and then uh, Jesse's going to come up and lead us in communion.